this week on the Back Table Podcast. Yeah, you know, we realized during our first trip that we didn't have access to blood. And it was just kind of amazing, the support of the community. You know, the hospital kind of spread the word that we needed blood products. And so the next day they had a blood drive and then we had blood products available. So you definitely feel the support of the community there. And we really hope that one day we can just leave and they'll continue that legacy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. Welcome back to another episode of Backtable OBGYN. This is Mark Hoffman. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Amy Park. Amy, how are you today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. And you were just at a big meeting, yeah? Yeah, I was at Augs. How was it? It was great. According to social media, it looked like a lot of fun. Yeah, it was super fun. Well, speaking of travel, we have an outstanding guest today, a friend and someone who I look forward to working with at some point in the future. I think she's outstanding. Dr. Princess Urbina. Princess, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure, and we're excited to have you on today to talk about your international work, your work in women's health and gynecologic surgery internationally. So thanks, and welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm really excited to talk about this topic with you guys. So as we do when we start most of our shows, I want our listeners to know a little bit about you, you know, your background and how you got to be where you are. And Dr. Urbina is an assistant professor of OBGYN at, I'm a Michigan grad, so I'm just going to say Ohio State University. She's a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon who just graduated fellowship from Northwestern. But before starting at Ohio State, you just came back from one of your international trips, which we'll hear all about, hopefully. But tell the listeners about yourself, how you got to be doing what you're doing, and how you got to be involved with this kind of work. Yeah, I'm originally from the Philippines, but I did my formal training here in the States. And it's always just kind of been ingrained in the back of my mind what I saw growing up, the effects of having the lack of access to healthcare and kind of the repercussions of that. So it's always been a goal of mine to go back and contribute to that environment and that population in some way. I was lucky enough to land at Northwestern where one of my attendings, Dr. Victor Trinkus, had a connection to the Philippines with his past mission work there. And the opportunity presented itself to myself and his partner, Dr. Malad, to do a mission trip last year in 2022. And it was really supposed to just be a one-time service type of mission trip. And it kind of unfolded to a bigger project and opportunity. It's exciting. So how much of your life did you spend living in the Philippines? So I moved here when I was about seven and a half, eight years old. Okay. So yeah, a lot of my formative years were spent there. Yeah, for sure. And do you get back there regularly to visit family or anything or is this? Yeah, we would go back pretty much every year on a yearly basis. And so kept in close touch with my neighbors and, and my family members and kind of got the details of what was happening in their lives. And yeah. So tell us about that first trip, and then I want to. Then we'll talk a little bit more about how that trip sort of was more of a beginning than anything else. So yeah, tell us about that first trip. So last year, you know, it was really just crowdfunding. We 
had an idea to establish a surgical site. So this area is in eastern Visayas, which is the typhoon-prone area of the Philippines. And it was actually devastated in 2013 by Typhoon Haiyan, or Yolanda, as they call it locally. And although a lot of infrastructure was invested in the area, not a lot was invested in healthcare. So this area sees a lot of advanced gynecologic disease and a lot of cervical cancer, actually. And so we had an idea of just kind of starting small and doing surgical cases. So we had a local partner there who established a hospital. But with the pandemic, it ended up being just an empty building. So we brought our own laparoscopic instruments. A local physician helped us recruit patients on Facebook, actually. And they were able to do the preoperative screening and send us the charts and we picked the patients. Dr. Trinkus went ahead of myself and Dr. Milad to optimize the patients preoperatively as much as he could and to really narrow down the operative schedule. And we just, we brought two of our awesome OR nurses from Northwestern and just hit the ground running. We did about 40 cases in eight days and it was a really life-changing experience for myself and my colleagues. That's incredible. I guess I'm trying to think logistically. There's just so many pieces of this. It's not simply like, oh, let's just go over there and operate, right? Because you were taking time out of fellowship and Dr. Malad and I'm sorry, who the, the other, Dr. Trinkus. So all you guys leaving Northwestern for a period of time to go do the work and the investment, not just the financial investment and the travel and all those things, but the time. How did you guys even know how to do that? Was that something that Dr. Trinkus had done before? Is that something that you were just figuring out as you went along? Yeah, Dr. Trinkus and Dr. Malad had done mission trips in the past, although it was with like an established mission that goes to another surgical site in the Philippines almost yearly. So I really leaned on their experience and, and wisdom and expertise, but we kind of had an idea of a working list of OR cases, kind of an idea of which cases we would do. My goal was to bring minimally invasive surgery to this area where they do midline verticals for a routine cesarean. So, you know, really starting from the basics of incision selection. So we knew we had to bring a laparoscope. <laughs> we knew had to bring, we had to bring a light source and such, and just kind of had an idea of what tools we might need to bring. And through donations and fundraising, we had a list of products that we would need to procure. And we kind of just like broke it down to we need to procure people and staff and the product. And we kind of just thought step by step, what would I need to perform a basic diagnostic laparoscopy? And it turns out that list is quite extensive and we had to be very flexible in what we actually needed, what would be the highest yield instruments and creative in what we needed to actually use when we got there. We had big goals of doing hysteroscopy, but a few things got missed like a foot pedal. So we had to be creative when we had our boots on the ground, but it really just boiled down to thinking stepwise what we need and what we use for each case and what we might encounter. And then we kind of thought about the people, who do we interact with when we're in the OR and who do we need? We wanted to make it big enough to where each person had a role, but not too big to handle or too big to digest. You know, a few different pillars that we really wanted to make sure we landed back on was a pillar of ethics. So we wanted to make sure that what we did was ethical and really value the goals of care of the patient. 
we wanted it to be sustainable in some way, even though we didn't really have the idea at first of this being a surgical site that we would return to on a quarterly or yearly basis. So, you know, we asked people around the area, like, would you like to learn from us and learn the minimally invasive techniques and the surgical techniques that we're teaching back in the States? And we had a bunch of residents and local physicians from eight hours away come and visit with us and learn from us. And even the nursing staff and the OR staff had people working alongside them. So it was sustainable with bi-directional learning at every level. And we also wanted to make sure it was responsible, that things that we did back home, full court press, endo resection, with backup with colorectal surgeons, you know, that may not be available to us. So we wanted to be responsible in what we promised we could do and what we actually did for the patients. So a lot of things in the background were taken into consideration, a lot of planning behind the scenes, a lot of formation meetings. And I think in the end, we were lucky with our first trip because things went really smoothly, all things considered. And it really sparked the idea of this being a sustainable learning site and site of service for for the community. Incredible. So what kinds of cases were you doing? You said you did about 40 cases in the course of a week or so, but what what were the majority of those cases? I'd say the majority of the cases that we did were myomectomies. We did a fair number of hysterectomies and uh, probably a handful of endoresection, but we also did a fimbrioplasty. You know, Dr. Malad is an expert at that. We did the first laparoscopic hysterectomy on the island, and we also did a cesarean delivery for a previa. And out of all of the awesome migsy things that we did, that really stuck out to me because it was really just an incidental serendipitous situation where a patient heard that we were coming. She wanted an ultrasound and she was diagnosed with a previa. So to think of what would have happened if we had not diagnosed that, it's a little bit scary to think about. So you brought ultrasound with you as well as the ultrasound they had there? They had one that they borrowed from a distant site. Can I just ask about the sustainability piece? Because it's a lot of equipment that you had to import in. And, you know, there's a lot of opinion pieces regarding like in Africa, the fistula tourism and is it sustainable to bring in this technology and do the actual surgeries in a way that the local people can do in your absence and in your stead. It sounds like there's a tradition and pipeline for performing these surgeries in this program and a relationship among the hospitals. But what is your take and your thoughts on that? Yeah, so we brought advanced bipolar devices and we knew that necessarily wouldn't be something that the local providers could utilize. So in the future projects, we decided to really focus on something that could be utilized by the providers. So currently, we are lucky enough to have funding from the Havy Institute for Global Health at Northwestern. And one of the things that we decided to invest in is reusable advanced bipolar devices. And so that's one of the things where we thought we could invest in this uh, reusable bipolar device and leave it there. And so it's something where it, it minimizes waste and it's something where local providers can get used to using that device and hopefully use it themselves. But this trip specifically that I just returned from, we weren't able to use 
laparoscopy beyond the first day due to power outages. So it really taught us to rely on minimally invasive techniques without the use of a laparoscope. And so, you know, what is that? Mini laparotomies and vaginal approaches. So when we were in the presence of these learners, you know, it was really eye-opening to realize that their preferred incision is midline vertical, even for a planned routine cesarean. And so that was something that we could contribute to them is to teach them how to make an incision through a fan and steel, how to, you know, perform a mini laparotomy, myomectomy, hysterectomy, you know, debulking of large myomas prior to performing the hysterectomy through a small incision, and even a vaginal hysterectomy. And it really just was an eye-opening experience for us and a learning point for us that a lot of these residents that are graduating from residency graduate only having seen one vaginal hysterectomy. And the extent of their involvement in laparoscopic cases is really holding the camera. And so being able to put in ports, being able to remove a tube, take bites, do half of a hysterectomy, you know, at the end of the two weeks that they were working with us was really a milestone for them. And although we can't, you know, leave a ligature, you know, for everyone to utilize, just being able to teach them kind of the basics of laparoscopy, I think was a big win for us. I was able to bring a lot of simulation equipment and I worked with a general surgery resident and an OBGYN resident for two weeks one-on-one. And it was just a really rewarding thing to hear that the general surgery resident after we left performed a laparoscopic cholecystectomy because he felt pretty comfortable after working with us and advocated for the patient to his attending to try a laparoscopic approach. And so for me, hearing that one incident was enough. It was worth it. That's incredible. And yeah, I mean, Amy's question is one that I think a lot of us think about. I mean, going to a place to show off what you can do is different than changing how that community is able to care for the members of that community. And I think that I imagine, and I'm gonna, I, I guess I want to hear from you, like, how did your understanding of the complexity of whether it's just surgery or also just providing care for patients, how did that, how did, how, how did these trips change how you see providing care when you're setting it all up yourself or setting up a great deal of it by yourself? You know, it definitely allowed me to be put in a position that I think takes quite a bit of time after one graduates residency or even fellowship. You know, having these patients come to us and be so grateful for their care, it's kind of a little bit shocking because, you know, we're just doing what we're trained to do day in and day out. But when you kind of realize that the reality is they don't have any other option, like it's just us, like we are it. They can't afford any other provider. They don't have access to any other provider. It really made me realize a sense of responsibility for the patient that I had never felt before. You know, a duty to live up to their expectation, a duty to provide them with the best care, to think about every single step of their procedure. From the time that they walk into the OR, the time that they're positioned, you know, our stirrups were hybrid between candy cane and Allen's. I don't really know what they're officially called, but even concerns about positioning came into play. And so a lot of things that we don't really think about too much back home 
were really highlighted. And it really just highlighted the importance of individual care plans. You know, some of our patients didn't have running water to go home to. So what type of dressing do I put on them? Do I maybe want to do Dermabond instead of Steri-Strips? Where do I put their incisions? What is their incision going to look like? When do I want to see them again? All of these things that become routine really were on a case-by-case basis because each person's situation differed. And even, you know, when do we keep them in the hospital? We had patients who traveled eight hours on a tricycle to come to our surgical site. So sending them home same day, even after a mini laparotomy, was something that we had to take into consideration. So we would keep some of those patients in the hospital for one or even two nights just to make sure they were okay because the chances of them being able to come back to us if they had any issues was much lower than what we would have at home. You talked about reviewing charts and patient selection. Who got those charts? Assuming you had a contact in that community that was able to help organize this to a degree, which also sounds like an incredible logistic challenge, knowing that patients are coming from hours and hours away. Like, how do they even know you guys were coming? Like, how how did it get set up in that way? You know, it's really funny because they utilized social media. So the hospital actually posted an ad on Facebook, on their on their Facebook website or Facebook page. And that said, we have a group of surgeons and obstetricians coming from the States. If you have any OBGYN needs or concerns, come to us. And, you know, so many people responded. And I think last year they posted once and 200 patients responded like in a couple of days. So Dr. Trinkus would go ahead and see those patients in the clinic and kind of help screen them and figure out which ones we could help surgically and really go through the charts, go through the ultrasound reports if they had one. Sometimes we would just have to go by the physical exam to kind of estimate myoma size, uterine size, mobility, kind of surgical route. And then we had a local internist who would help us for patients with comorbidities get preoperative assessments and make sure that it was safe for us to proceed with surgery. We had a couple people who actually were denied surgical clearance. So it was kind of nice because when we came back this year, a few patients who weren't able to get surgery last year, we were able to help out. And so I assume you guys had local anesthesia providers, you had local lab and that kind of stuff to a degree. Yeah. So the first trip, we were able to bring anesthetists with us and they were able to work one-on-one with local anesthesia residents who had just graduated from their program, but they're obligated to do a year of service. And so this year, we were not able to have anyone from the States join us from an anesthesia perspective. So we worked one-on-one with local anesthesia providers. And it, it really just highlighted the importance of cultural competence, you know, and making sure that you kind of are aware of the culture of the population that you're entering, but also the professional culture Whereas where we kind of knew the anesthetists that we brought last year, the anesthesia team we worked with were totally new to us. And, you know, they were from the local team. So we weren't really aware of a lot of kind of cultural differences. One being, for example, you know, back home, there's really dynamic conversation between the drapes, right? If your patient is needing pressers, you know, you would expect that information be relayed to you. I think that They're still, paternalistic is the wrong word, but they're still an archaic hierarchy in some 
places in the world where you don't want to tell the surgeon bad news. You just kind of deal with it. And so there was in the beginning, a little bit of kind of fear to tell us, you know, if the patient was kind of heading in the wrong direction or if we were experiencing higher blood loss and, you know, a fear for, of speaking up, not just from the anesthesia team, but also from the nursing team. We had an instance where we had an incorrect lab count and the scrub was afraid to tell us. And so, you know, our circulator and scrub really encouraged them like, hey, it's safe. Everyone has an equal voice here. You need to tell them this is for the patient. And, you know, when they did, it was kind of eye-opening that their voice was shaking. They were speaking a little bit lowly. Like back home, it'd be like, okay, everybody stop. We have an incorrect lab count. All hands on deck. And so that was kind of like a secondary learning objective of like modeling what appropriate OR culture should be and modeling leadership in the OR not just from the surgical team, but from the nursing team and the anesthesia team as well. Like, we all have an equal voice. This is how it should be. It shouldn't be, you know, a situation where people are afraid to speak up. So, you know, that was that was a really nice way for us to kind of model that. But we didn't get to bring anesthesia this time. And it was just kind of really nice to know that we didn't have to rely on always bringing someone from the States to fill a role. We could still educate and teach, even though there's not a representative from that component of the surgical team. So you mentioned sustainability along with that, the education piece, but what stayed behind physically, like in terms of equipment, what stayed behind in terms of the education and training piece, but all, and then what's the plan for creating sustainability for the long term for the site where you guys were? Yeah. So, you know, even last year with just it being crowdfunded, we were able to come up with quite a bit. I mean, we had to bring much less this time. So Pretty much our entire tower, we were able to leave behind last year. We also left behind a few disposable bipolar devices, sutures. From the simulation component, we had portable box trainers and laparoscopic instruments. Then I kind of MacGyvered Varus needle entry simulator. We also had a projector and a screen that we left behind, kind of utilize the surgery U videos for a lot of our teaching for the visual learners. And kind of moving forward, you know, as I mentioned, we received generous funding from the Havy Institute of Global Health from Northwestern. And so with that, we are investing in reusable bipolar devices that are going to stay there to really focus on our sustainability. And in terms of padding, we figured out a way to make covers that are wipeable and washable for the foam padding so they're reusable and not single use. And you know, from an obstetric component, we definitely are going to focus on fetal monitoring, which is not currently available, and simulators for postpartum hemorrhage, you know, shoulder dystocia, and preeclampsia, because currently they don't have any plans in place for simulation. And then another arm is the ambulatory arm. You know, cervical cancer is the most common GYN malignancy in the Philippines, and HPV vaccination is abysmal. I mean, the Philippines ranks the last in HPV program rates in the entire world. So less than 5% of the population is fully vaccinated. And so that definitely is an arm of our health center that we want to focus on with the help of this grant. 
focusing on see and treat for patients who are, you know, greater than 35. And then for patients who are less than 15, really making sure that we are capturing them and getting them vaccinated. So did you guys have vaccines there and it was more of an education piece? Did you have to bring some of that stuff with you or? So that component is going to be an objective of the team that goes in February. Initially, we thought we would go just once a year, but we're actually currently working on a schedule where we have a team going every three months with different objectives. So in February, it'll be really optimizing the tower. Our light source kind of fizzled out as we realized this trip. So investing in a new light source potentially or trying to get this one fixed as much as we can and really talking to the Department of Health to see how we can get our hands on the vaccines, which they will be able to provide. Studies have shown, though, that, you know, finances are really the limiting factor for patients getting vaccinated for HPV. One study noted that it costs around $20 to get a full set of vaccines when, you know, your income is $90 for the entire month. You can see how that's not really a priority for a lot of people. It's incredible. I mean, it, it is easy to take for granted what we have here. And it's easy for those of us who are always trying to think of ways to make things better to see the negative and go, oh, man, we should have this or we should have that. And sort of, I think this a little bit ingrained in sort of how we try to work to get better. But I, I think that when you go to a, an environment that's very different from the one in which we're trained, it makes you think about things very differently. It certainly does for me. And I know it's not the same thing, but when I would go out to Eastern Kentucky and work in places where they didn't have a lot of what what we had where I was, it was just me. He had to do a hysterectomy and like he had to think about all the parts and pieces for that particular surgery, but they they still had, you know, anesthesia, they still had laparoscopic towers, they still had most of the infrastructure and it still felt like sort of putting it all together from scratch. So to, to think about that's just like one certain piece of surgery, right? There's There's so many ends to surgery, like you said, the ambulatory, the anesthesia side of things, the equipment side, all those things. You have to figure it out, including doing like vaginal hysterectomy, which, you know, Amy is our resident vaginal hysterectomy expert. Had you done a bunch of vaginal hysterectomies in fellowship, or was that something you're comfortable doing? For sure. I chose Northwestern specifically because I wanted to continue to grow in that in that route. And Northwestern was a really great place to do that. And I did about 30 plus, I think, in, in fellowship that I have logged from memory. Maybe don't quote me on that, but, you know, definitely V-Notes is a passion of mine. And I think that it has a lot of potential for education. And, you know, vaginal hysterectomy, I think, is the OG MIGS route. And so you all you really need is a Kelly, you know, and some suture. But I really loved being able this trip to do vaginal hysterectomies and do them with someone who's only seen one and has already graduated from residency. You know, do I really expect her to just go out now and do a vaginal hysterectomy? Probably not yet. But actually, this person was a learner that we had last year. And so being able to have like compounded interactions with them, they were able to do a fan and steel incision on a C-section that they did. So that's a win for me that they're not doing midline verticals anymore. So I see the seed planted and it's going to grow. It's going to take a lot of time and repeat interactions. But that's what we're there for. We're there for the long haul. But, you know, I will say it's easy to just kind of do things when you have a resource-rich environment. But when you are in a low-resource environment, it really makes you realize what little, how little you need to do a surgery. 
you know, one of our anesthesia machines was functioning, but the monitors broke and we had a hysteroscopy to perform. And we just kind of thought, well, we have a portable pull socks. We have a blood pressure monitor. We can just have someone squeeze the bag for us. And that's what we did. You know, not having a monitor and doing surgery was just kind of crazy to me. But if you just have continuous pulse socks and the ability to read a blood pressure, that's kind of all you need. We had someone who had an advanced molar pregnancy, but we didn't have the curettes for our suction. And so we just cut a plastic yank hour at the largest diameter and utilized that. And that worked perfectly. So a lot of innovation, I think, stems from not having a lot of resources. And we were able to do quite a bit with the limited resources that we had. We did a myomectomy of 2,600 gram myoma with a mini lab and the patient did really great. And we realized that you don't really need a filter for the insufflation machine. You know, if your tubing goes in the direction of gravity, then it really shouldn't backflow into your air supply. So a lot of these fundamentals really are all that you need without all the bells and whistles that we're used to in the OR. So you talked about social media um, in terms of how the local hospital was able to communicate, but I'm just thinking about like follow-up. Were you, was there any follow-up at all with patients? And then was there any follow-up with the docs who were there? So like, are you still in communication with any of the docs? Is there still any additional education or clinical work being done remotely? Yeah. So for the patients, we don't have access to an EMR yet. And so kind of the best that we could do was really utilize the social media platform, Facebook, which pretty much everybody in the Philippines has. And so with their patient's consent, you know, acknowledging that this isn't fully secured or encrypted, you know, we asked if we could follow up with them virtually through Facebook. And so pretty much every single patient said yes and had Facebook. And so they would message the hospital Facebook page with their information. And I, through that platform, would schedule telehealth follow-up visits with them a week and six weeks out. I think we actually did four and then six weeks. And so although the time difference was a little bit of a hurdle to get around, I was able to follow up with nearly every single patient. And that was really awesome because I was able to ask them all of the post-op questions we ask in person, see their incision. And if they really weren't having symptoms, then we didn't have to bring them eight hours back for a cuff check. And that really made me realize that you have to be really flexible when doing global health work with the resources that you have. But you should really be unwavering with the fundamentals and values of surgery, you know, still maintaining patient privacy, making sure that you've really focused on the patient's goals of care and doing right by them. But if you have to do a follow-up via Facebook Messenger, video, that's not really the end of the world, as long as the patient's okay. You are at an academic institution. You're currently beginning your attending career at an academic institution. How are you able to get time off? Is this purely vacation? Is this something that was approved by the department? Like, How did that work out for you and Dr. Malad and getting time to actually go over there? So I had the benefit of my program director being the one to go on this trip. So he pretty much just asked me if I wanted to go along. And, you know, I said yes. But it was definitely supported by the rest of the MIGS department, MIGS division. It was a really great 
gift that my co-fellow gave to me, Lulu. She held down the fort while we were gone. I really hope that other fellows are able to go or experience something like this because it definitely allowed me to grow as a provider. We actually had one operating room, but to optimize our ability to see and serve patients and operate on them, we divided the room in half with a shower curtain. So one room was, you know, laparotomy, vaginal routes. The other half was laparoscopy. And so it was just kind of surreal to be operating in the same room with my program director, but separate and have my own patients. And one thing, too, is we did a lot of our cases under spinal. That was also really interesting to be able to do a mini lap myomectomy on a patient who was singing to you. (laughs) (laughs) But being able to really have autonomy to that level, I think, was really crucial and a milestone for me as a fellow back then. And it's definitely an educational experience I plan on sharing with my future residents at Ohio State. It seems like having a department that supports it is a huge part of that. Definitely. You know, when I was interviewing for positions, I made sure to tell them that, you know, first of all, I have the strip coming up in October. And so that was really important to me to be able to go and that this is something that I plan on doing for the rest of my career. And especially after we had the grant funding, you know, having a plan for different groups going every couple of months came into play. And it really was wonderful for the division to be supportive of that and not just supportive, but really enthusiastic about the opportunity to share that experience with their learners. So it was really great. They gave me allocated time off every year to do that and as well as voluntarily offering a travel fund for myself and a resident. So that was major. I just wanted to ask, I've heard so many different international program type structures. So there's volunteer organizations. It sounds like in your case, it's a hospital and personal philanthropy. There are organizations. Like ultimately, though, regarding the sustainability and the model of the healthcare system, I mean, supplying carbon dioxide to the operating room, anesthesia, a highly reliable organizational culture. Like, how are those things getting imparted in the Philippines? Or, I mean, I know these are big questions, but philosophically, it's something that I've seen a huge change in the last 20 years here in the States. Yeah. So our goal is, you know, we have this for our specific unique situation where it really is just small scale. It's not Doctors Without Borders by any means, but just something that, you know, sparked from a group of people doing their own mission. With the funding, we're really hoping that this develops into a health center for excellence in Salcedo. And our goal is to have an OBGYN provider there who we can work alongside for X amount of years with different teams coming in every few months and really training them so that they can be the providers that continue all of this when we leave. The goal is for us to eventually not be needed anymore and for them to say, you know, you guys, we got it. And with the funding, the infrastructure will be established there with the instruments, the tools, the CO2 and kind of the things that need to be supplied locally. The hospital has agreed to kind of continue that, but really getting this off the ground, that's really spearheaded by this amazing grant that we got. 
eventually downstream, and this is just dreaming, it would be an official educational learning site for residents and or fellows. So that would really feed the sustainability component, at least from an educational perspective. But being able to have someone who's locally there, who we can help train and kind of uplift with their skills so that they can do minimally invasive surgery in this really remote island is kind of our goal. Yeah, the funding also seems like it's an issue, you know, to buy the equipment. I mean, this equipment is expensive. I mean, I love the necessity as a mother invention, like using the yank hour instead of the, the section curette and all of these other things that you're describing. I, I remember one of my attendings in residency came back from Africa and she was like, try doing a vag hiss with a malleable like two sutures and no suction. And in my mind, I was like, no, thank you. Like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> um, but uh, it, I think that that's why everybody's using instrument ties and, and there's not blood available. And there's a different level. Like there's kind of like IV fluids and that's it. <laughs> yeah, you know, we realized during our first trip that we didn't have access to blood. And it was just kind of amazing the support of the community, you know, the hospital kind of spread the word that we needed blood products. And so the next day they had a blood drive and then we had blood products available. So you definitely feel the support of the community there. And we really hope that one day we can just leave and they'll continue that legacy. But at this point, you know, yeah, if you have cervical cancer, then you either don't know or you can't get treated. You know, I vividly remember growing up one of my neighbors, he and his wife were pregnant, and it seemed like she was pregnant for so long. It ended up that she had an IUFD. And so that was a really poignant memory that I had. And so thinking about all these women who, you know, came to our clinic this visit, this trip that we had, just for their first ultrasound, first prenatal visit, and their 35 weeks, you know, it really just highlights the importance of just being present and sparking sparking a light of healthcare and hopefully it'll ignite and continue. Yeah, that was a bit of a tangent, but. <laughs> That's what this podcast is for, allowing our amazing guests to tell the stories that mean something to them. It's something that a lot of us have wanted to do. I mean, we've, I've thought about it a bunch, but I think the big, the big hard step is actually doing it. And so how does someone like me get to go do something like that? So I don't have my own program. I'm not at a place that's funded my time off. Like, how can I go with you over to the Philippines and, and do this and learn how to do it? Like, what are, what are the options for those of us who are interested in getting started? So, you know, I was lucky enough to just kind of join in on a project that was already in the works. And so since we already have this established with funding, if you're interested, then just email me because we need people to go. We want our presence to be there, you know, as often as we can so that we can keep the momentum going and, um, you know, kind of I think the limiting step would be for someone to start their own project, like finding a site and finding a host team who is as supportive as the team that we have in Salcedo. We are only as successful as, you know, enthusiastic as they are. And with every little thing that we've needed, we had a part of the table come off and the brother of the medical director of this hospital went to his bike and took a part of his bicycle and was like, this should work you know, keep your leg rest up, which is, you know, pretty crucial. And so just that amount of enthusiasm, I think, is really imperative. And so finding a place that is really meaningful to you that will 
sustain your enthusiasm for this type of work because it can seem really daunting, you know, and it can it can be overwhelming. So finding a surgical site that you have a personal connection with, finding a host team that's all in, and then really just reaching out to your community of friends, colleagues, family members for funding and support, talking to your friends in industry to see if there's any way that they can contribute, talking to your home institution to see if there's anything that they can donate to your cause, you know, is a way for you to kind of procure products. And then just, you know, procuring people, we have the benefit of a lot of amazing colleagues. And so just kind of sharing what you want to do and your thoughts and your goals and having people know that it's really surprising how many people are just going to say yes. I just texted one of my former attendings, Dr. Randy Lazardo, and I told him about the trip that I wanted to go on this October. And he just said, yes. I was like, yeah, sure. You're not going to show up, <laughs> you know, but he's there currently right now doing surgery and loving it. So reaching out and just voicing interest, it's interesting how things just fall into place. You know, my hope is that there will be a more established network within certain societies like AAGL. There's, you know, a research network for fellows and such. Maybe there's a need for an outreach network where people who really want to do this type of work and give back have an easier time to connect and um, put their heads together and resources together. It's awesome. Well, you've been an inspiration for me and hopefully now you'll be an inspiration for our listeners. Amy, what do you say we go over there and take the show on the road? I think what these people and around the world need is a live podcasted version of international medicine. It's something I've thought about over the years. I've always thought that that would be great. Um, and there've been opportunities. I know like when I was in fellowship, they had one, but my kids are brand new. And I was like, I'm, now's not a great time to go, but there's probably never a great time to go. And honestly, the need's always there. So uh, I look forward to chatting with you after we hang up and uh, in, in a couple of weeks, are you going to be in Nashville? Yes, I'll see you guys there. Wonderful. And we can we can hang out and you can help me plan my trip. Perfect. We'll get you all covered. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you're home safe. I'm glad you were able to join us on such short notice to tell us about your amazing work. And uh, I know that Linda Yang had reached out to me at one point and was like, you got to have these guys on to talk about their trip because it's incredible. I think you've inspired a lot of people around you and keep doing what you're doing. I don't have any, any doubts that you will, but I appreciate you coming on and allowing us the opportunity to share about the work that you're doing because I do think that it's tough. It's tough to do it well. It's tough to do it right. Folks that do it just almost for themselves in some way or for another cause, but to actually go there and think about why you're there and how thoughtful the approach was, not just, oh, look what I did, but thinking about how the impact in the community can be sustained is is incredible. And it's fun to watch. I watch you go do these great things. I'm excited to follow your career and I'm glad to call you friends. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. You know, it could have been me on that OR table needing surgery myself from another surgeon from the States. So, you know, it really did come full circle. Thanks for letting me share my story. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from 
Taylor Spurgeon Hess, and Yvonne Orvijinski. Show notes and social media by Emma Landenwich and Lindsay Beecham. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kinnebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.